0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Vitology Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this week on the podcast, uh, we have a special opportunity to hear one of our third Wednesday growth track seminars. Uh, we're doing this uh, every third Wednesday of the month, and, and we're really going to try to bring these to you on the podcast as well because this is where we bring in uh, speakers or some of our pastors do trainings that are uh, that are specific to different areas. This one is dealing with loving the LGBT community. It's something we as a church, we really want to do. We want to learn how to do better. And so that's what this, uh, this podcast is all about uh, today. And so uh, I'm going to turn it over. You're actually going to hear my— Hear me introducing our speaker next. So, thanks so much for joining. We'll be back. Uh, Pastor Ryan and I will be back answering questions uh, in a couple weeks. We will not be here the day before Thanksgiving. So, enjoy your Thanksgiving holidays. God bless everybody. Here you go. Um, is the author of, of three books uh, one called Messy Grace, um, another one called God of Tomorrow. And uh, another one called Messy Truth that has uh, just recently come out. Uh, he is uh, did his studies at Talbot School of Theology. Okay, we've we've heard of that one around here. Um, he got his doctorate at uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, not only that, he started a, he started an organization called the the Messy Messy Grace Group, which is is a is a group that is trying to help churches like ours uh help love the lgbt community and so uh he has been all around all around the world speaking about this all around the country um, sharing with the schools and churches uh, all over the place uh teaching them how to do this well and so um not only that but He's an avid Star Wars fan, avid Marvel fan, but most importantly, he has a, he has a wonderful family, a wife and two kids, and uh, he, you're going to get to hear a little bit of his story, um, hopefully quite a lot of his story, and so I'd love it if you put your hands together for Caleb Kaltenbach. Come on up,
1: Caleb. Hey, it is, uh, it is great to be here with you today. Uh, like you said, my name is Caleb, and um, I just wanted to let you know, you if, if you attend here, uh, this is a great church, just getting to know your staff. I haven't been here on a weekend, Sunday morning, Sunday night. I'm sure it's great. I haven't been here yet, but I can tell you that you have a great staff, you have a great team. If you're visiting and you're looking for a church, like I would really consider uh, partnering with this church you know, checking it out, kicking the tires, checking underneath the hood, seeing if this is where you want to park. Um, it seems like a really, really solid place. So I hope that that's something that you guys will do. Let me tell you a little bit more about myself. I'm married uh, to my wife, Amy. Um, and uh, she is a muy caliente Latina. And in her wildest dreams, she had no clue that her knight- shining armor would look like a cross between uh, Uncle Fester, Gru, and Dr. Evil right here. This is... This is her eye candy that she gets to look at every morning. Uh, Like tomorrow morning, she'll wake up, and this will be the first sight she sees. Can you imagine being so blessed right here? Um, Yeah, yeah, praise God there, yeah. Um, And uh, she used to be a second-grade teacher. She is now a marriage and family therapist. She's a Christian counselor, or a counselor who is a Christian. She also Counselors from the Bible, when uh, her clients uh, so desire that. She's a fantastic individual. Uh, We have two kids. We have my son, Joel, who's 14, and my daughter, Rachel, who's 12, going on 19 already. And um, I love both my kids equally, but I got to tell you about Joel, because he was our firstborn. He was the child that we didn't think we could have, because you see, when we first got married, we were told that we couldn't have children, and we tried, and we tried, and we tried. And no matter how hard we tried, we couldn't have kids. And so we both kind of eventually fell into a depression. And we didn't handle it well. I threw myself into my work, which was destructive. And my wife was much more destructive and toxic. And she started watching uh, Twilight movies and Hugh Grant movies. And I just said, that's it. We're going to get you pregnant one way or another. Um, Even if it's an immaculate conception, a virgin birth. It's going to happen. So we ended up going to a fertility clinic. We got pregnant with my son, Joel, on our first try and my daughter, Rachel, on our second try. And uh, when we got pregnant with Joel, we were so excited. Like, I know that I'm I'm getting ready to tell you about a sin I committed, and that I haven't totally repented of yet, so please forgive me ahead of time, but I lied to uh, my church and said, I'm sick, I can't come in, because I was just so excited. We just hung out at Babies R Us back when they had stores for like four hours, you know? And I mean, we... We lost friends. We went over to people's houses. We monopolized conversations and talked about our pregnancy, and we didn't care. We would get new friends, right? We'd get other pregnant friends. We didn't care because we were finally pregnant, and I could not wait to get to the hospital and to have our kids. You know why? Because I'd seen the movies I knew what was going to happen. I knew the child was going to come out and there was going to be the shining light from heaven and there was going to be the underscoring epic Star Wars John Williams music and the baby would come out pristine clean, making cute little cooing noises, would grab my finger and with perfect pronunciation would say the word father and that is not what happened people. I got there, I got there and everything was great until the pain hit my wife and she became somebody I had not exchanged vows with. (laughs) I put my hand on her shoulder to try to comfort her and she looked at me and she growled and she said, don't you touch me right now. And I said, okay, Emily Rose, Linda Blair, whatever your name is, you know, we need an old priest and a young priest in room two. And they gave her drugs and she went back to loving God and others at that point. And then... (laughs) And then when it was time for my son to come into the world, the doctor comes in and puts down a plastic mat all over the floor and uh, they come out in what looks like hazmat outfits and a welding mask. And I'm like, is something getting ready to explode? Like I'm the only one that is not covered. And literally when my son came into the world, my expression went from this to, oh. it's like, you gotta put him back in. He needs to cook some more, he's not ready. He came out, and he was a color that Crayola had never invented a crayon for, okay? I mean, he had gunk on him I had never seen. He, like, was, did not make cute, cooing baby noises. He made noises like a goblin when he came out. And, I mean, his neck was weird. And, and, like, if you get to know me, I have ADHD, so I don't always have much of a filter. And this day, I definitely didn't. They wrapped him in a blanket. They gave him to me, and they said, what do you think? And without even thinking no filter, I looked at my kid and I said, he looks like a turtle. (laughs) Those were the first words about my child, my son. And when my daughter was born, she looked like this big big red juicy ladybug. And if you had been there, you would have said, man, that's that's messy. And it was, it was like a B-rated horror movie um, when we were all done in that room. And yet here I am and I can't explain it. I'm just you know, holding my, my son, I'm holding my daughter, um, and I, can't, I don't know where this came from, but I just loved my child in that moment, and I don't know where that love came from, and I still love my children, like, and, and they have done things to me, people, believe me, they have done things to me, they have taken my money, okay, they have gotten me sick, okay, they have taken my time, time. they have lied to me, okay, I used to look like Zac, Zac Efron, and then I had children, and this <laughs> happened right here, okay? So, if you don't have kids yet, good luck um, with that. But even with all that, like my children have done nothing during my life. But at the same time, I just love my kids. And I don't know if you need to hear this, or maybe somebody you know needs to hear this. I just want you to know that's how God feels about you. Like, you see, this is what we do. And when I say we, I mean non Christians and Christians. We love to categorize people. Based on their messiness. To put false labels on people. And and to define people with false definitions. We love to look at people and label them and say things like, well, you can't get a job, you're bankrupt, you've been on how many marriages, you've got this going on, you, you, know, you don't have a relationship with your kids, you don't have a relationship with your parents, you've got this issue, you've got this mental health issue, you're on what kind of medication, you're on this, medic- this, this, this. And we just we, we define each other by that. Here's what, when you follow Jesus and get in a relationship with him, here's what happens. Um, he takes you out of the categories. He looks past the false definitions that lie, He rips off the labels, and he says, that's my child. And I love my child, and nothing will ever remove that love, right? You see, I love that. I love the fact that God loves messy people like me, because the word messy, the first two letters there, M-E, me, messy, right? If you meet somebody and they don't think they're messy, you know that person's really messy because they're a liar. Um, (laughs) But here's the deal. I, I understand how God can love messy people like me. I just don't get how God can love people that are messy in ways that I'm not, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like like, like Shirley and Bob. You know, Bob, like he's the person at your work or at your school you go to, and you see him. You're walking down the hall use the bathroom. You see him coming. You just do an about face and walk the other way. You get in a conversation with him. There's no chewing your leg out of that bear trap he just talk, 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 right? And people are like, Shirley, I mean, she did not invite me to the park. She invited everybody else, not me. What's going on with Shirley? And then you start having issues with Bob, and you're like, God, help me out with Bob. I I just, I need you to teach him a lesson. Then Bob gets a raise. You're like, dude, I thought we were on the same team, God. You and me, (laughs) anti-Bob. Not how it works. But it goes deeper than that even, right? What about people who voted for the other candidate? Yeah, now it's quiet. (laughs) What about people that uh, have different jobs that you would never have? worked for a corporation that you would never work for? People who are in relationships that you would never work in? People who identify themselves by things that you would never do? What about those people? How can we love those people? And yet, here's the deal. If we do not grasp on to what it means to love your neighbor, you're never going to understand the full counsel of Scripture. And here, by the way, that's not my words. You want to get mad at somebody, go get mad at Paul. He's dead, so you'll have to wait a little bit to talk to him about it. <laughs> Spoiler if you haven't read the Bible. Um, but it was the Apostle Paul in, Genesis, in, in Galatians 5 and Romans thirteen eight through 10 that said, loving your neighbor fulfills the law you see we have to learn how to grasp onto what jesus said love the lord your god with all your heart soul and mind love your neighbor as yourself so how can we do that how can we love people that are different from us and people that would make relational decisions that we would never make People who identify in ways that we would never identify, and what does that look like? How can we do that? Well, uh, to be able to do that, I want you to uh, join me. If you have your Bible or your mobile devices, um, and if you don't, that's fine. I'm going to read to you. We're going to be in the book of John, John chapter 8, okay? Now, I want to address this real quick because I know some of you have been Christians for a long time, right? Some of you have been Christians ever since God was a boy. That's how long. (laughs) So I just want to say this real quick, because I know there are some of you, I, I know people who have said, well, you know, how can he paste from John? Because that has a little, little subscript there that says, well, it doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts. Let me just let you all know, people, okay? I'm a preacher. If it's in this book, it's fair game. Okay? Any other questions? Go and talk to Pastor Josh afterwards. Or call him at 3 in the morning. He loves phone calls at 3 a.m. I'll give you a cell phone number. Just let me know, okay? But in, in John chapter 8, we're joining Jesus in the middle of his ministry, okay? And, and this extraordinary things happen happens to Jesus. And it's not like an unextraordinary thing ever happens to Jesus, but I just love what happens here. Um, look at John chapter 8, beginning of verse 2. It says, early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him. <laughs> he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? We're just going to read in the beginning of verse six. We're going to stop right in the middle. This is this. First part of verse 6 just drives me nuts. It says, this they said to test him, that they may, might have some charge to bring against him. Now, let me just set the scene for you here. Jesus is in the temple, and he's teaching. And the scribes and the Pharisees, you have the, in some translations, it says the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. The teachers of the law, those were like the seminary or the Bible college professors, okay? Okay. And then you had the Pharisees. They were like the pastors of the day. Like you watch some of these Bible movies, you get the idea. Yeah, there were like 20, you know, Pharisees, maybe 35 or something like that. No, back in the first century, there were some 6,000 Pharisees walking around the land of Judea, Palestine, okay? And a great number of them did not like Jesus because Pharisees controlled through legalism. And they controlled through fear. And I don't know if you picked this up from any of our recent elections, but if you can get somebody to be afraid enough, you can control them. You ever notice that? When you get people to be afraid, you can control them. And so the Pharisees used legalism on a regular basis to try to control people so they could keep their control. And yet here comes Jesus and John chapter 1 verses 14, 17 say that he came full of both grace and truth of conviction and compassion, of principle and of mercy. And so they find this woman caught in the act of adultery. I don't know. Did you hear what I said, by the way? In the act, in the act. Like, I don't know how they did that. They're creepers, obviously, right? (laughs) They catch her. They drag her through the town. They put her at the feet of Jesus, and they act all sanctimonious. All so in the law, Moses commands us to so such women. So what do you say? Like, they're standing up for the law. They're breaking the law. Because the law also says that there has to be a fair trial, that you have to have two witnesses if you catch somebody in adultery. That there needs to be a trial, and there's no trial. They just find her, they bring her to Jesus. And it does say, in Deuteronomy 22, different time, different circumstances, Okay, we'll let Pastor Ryan preach on that sometime. It does say that if a man or woman are caught in the act of adultery, you can take them outside the city gates and stone them. Did you hear what I said? A man or a woman, and I'm like, where's the dude? (laughs) He's not there. Like I checked just, you know, right after worship, just to make sure. He's still not there. And I guess what makes me mad is that they don't care about a fair trial. They don't care about God's word. They don't care about this woman or what she's been through or the pain or the hurt. They are using this woman as much as the man who's having an affair with her was using her. Because they are willing for her to die so they can be right and score one on top of Jesus. Maybe even if they're lucky, prove him to be a false prophet. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. But don't ever try to checkmate Jesus. <laughs> like, it just doesn't go well. And so, I remember reading this the first time. I was on pins and needles to find out what happened next. I, I, if you haven't read this story in a while, or maybe you've never read it, the next verse, is a little awkward. And some of you are like, Caleb, don't call it awkward. It's God's word. Yes, thank you, Sherlock. I know that. It is God's word. I'm not saying it's bad, creepy, strange. I'm saying I bet this is something you wouldn't do. Take a look. Look at the rest of verse 6 here. Tell me if you would do this. Jesus bent down and wrote on the, with his finger on the ground. That's an awkward thing to do. Really? You don't think so. When was the last? That's because you guys have read this too many times. When was the last time you were in an argument and you just said, hold on. <laughs> Let me tell you something, husbands. I tried it with my wife, Amy, last week. I do not recommend it. We were bending, like we were arguing. I bent down, started riding on the ground. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm acting like Jesus. I figured one of us should. I did not say that, by the way. You know how you know I didn't say that? Because I'm alive or I'm not maimed right now. I guarantee you that I did not say that, especially when the Latina fire comes out. That's not happening. No, 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 no. Nope. But a lot of people try to figure out what was Jesus writing on the ground. And and there, there are people that have different answers. Like some people think he was writing down the sins of the people in the crowd or verses of scripture. But there's this really cool, interesting verse all the way back in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 17, verse 13. See if you can make the connection here. It says, "'O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame.'" And those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. Or this Hebrew word could be the dust, the ground, the sand, the mud. Why? For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Like, if I was in Vegas, I'd put all my chips in on the fact that Jesus was writing down the names of the Pharisees in that moment. And I think he was making a statement, and I think that they knew it, and I think he was making a statement that you think this woman is far away from God. She is actually closer, even in the midst of her sin, because you have no love. You have no grace. You have no compassion. And I think they got what he was saying. And they kept on, they kept on questioning him. And as a matter of fact, it says... In in verse 7, as they continued to ask him, Jesus stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. Now, I love this. This is brilliant. Like, if if you, like, know anything about Jesus, you know that this is brilliant. Here's how you know this is brilliant, okay? After hearing this, as we're going to see, they're not going to throw a stone. You know why? They can't. Because Jesus says, if any one of you is without sin, you be the one to throw a stone. Well, first of all, they knew that they had sin, And as a Pharisee, you wanted to keep all 613 Old, Old Testament commandments perfectly. And like, lying was breaking a commandment. Like, lying is such a big deal that God put it in the top 10, right? Out of the 613. Why? Because lying harms the relationship. In many cases, lying breaks the relationship, Right? And so if they claim to be God, if they claim to be without sin, they would be lying. But also, if they claim to be without sin and threw a stone, the very rock that they threw would be used to throw right back at them. Why? Because they believed, like I believe, like this church believes, the leadership, that God is the only sinless being in existence. And so if they claim to be without sin and threw a rock, Everybody there would know that they had sinned. They were claiming to be God in that moment, and that rock would be used to throw him back at them because blasphemy was punishable by the death penalty. I tell people all the time, you may not believe in Jesus yet. You've got to admit, he's got mad skills. You do not want to get in an argument with Jesus. And I mean, just the aftermath of this just makes me laugh. It's brilliant. Look at verse 9 here. It says... But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Verse 10 says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, right there. We went through this whole passage to get to the last half of verse 11. Let me read this. It's one long sentence in the original language, in the original Greek. Neither do I condemn you, and from now on, sin no more. You see, right here, you have Jesus showing her love and giving her the truth. And as I just quoted earlier in the sermon, uh, John chapter 1, verses 17, 14 through 17 say that Jesus Christ came full of both grace and truth at the same time. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's brilliant. I also think that's difficult because here's what I know about you, and I know this about you because you are a homo sapien. If you don't know what that means, that means human being, okay? Just go back, read your science textbook, you'll see. It's a trend. Never mind, forget We're going to move past that, okay? If you're not a homo sapien, I would love to talk to you afterwards. I have questions. (laughs) Pretty sure we do too. Might want to interview you on stage. It would be fun for everyone. But here's what I know about you. That you lean towards one or the other. There are some of you, you're all about the grace. Others of you, you're all about the truth. Let me say this another way. Some of you are all about like mercy and adoration. Some of you are all about the rules. Some of you are like my kids when they play Monopoly. The rules, they don't matter. (laughs) You just do whatever you want until you start losing. Then you have to say the rules. And you invent new ones that nobody even knew were real. You try to get daddy to go on Wikipedia to see if they're really there. No. Some of you are like my wife. Right before the game, you're like, she says, let's all read through the rule book together. That's fun. Rules control the fun. Rules make fun more fun. And then by the end, I'm like, wow, I've had so much fun, I may have to sit out the game. Um, (laughs) Just reading through the rule book was just so exhilarating. I mean, maybe maybe I can go look at a block of cheese right now. That would be a great follow-up to what just happened and took place in this moment. And I'm going to make a statement here, and I'm not going to try to insult you personally. I'm, I'm throwing all of us under the bus, so I'm insulting all of us at once, even myself. That if you're either all about the grace or all about the truth, you might be saved, you might be a Christian, see you in heaven. Do me a favor, though. Never call yourself a mature Christian, because you're not. You're weak. You're unchristlike. Weak people take sides between grace and truth. Christlike people act like Jesus and they come with both grace and truth at the same time. So here's the deal. If you're just all about the grace for no truth, it's like holding a rubber band by one side. You ever see somebody just hold a rubber band by one side? Yeah. No. You know why? Because it's ridiculous. There's no purpose. You would slap the person to try to bring them back to reality. <laughs> That's what it's like when somebody's all about the grace and all about blah 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 grace, grace, mercy, mercy. No, mercy, don't say, bad shit the same thing with people who are all about the truth but no grace you know these people right yeah you know these people do not look at the person next to you but you know these people these are the people that know the bible really well they want you to know that they know the bible really well know anybody like that you're like you're like in a study with them you're like yeah i think that you know paul said this in philippians no that's colossians Well, Jesus said this in Matthew. No, that's John. It's like, thank you. Thank you for correcting me. I appreciate that. I, seriously, I wouldn't know what to do with you if we didn't have you in this Bible study to correct me. Personally, I never knew how much I love to be corrected until I got married. It's, you know what's really amazing? Whenever I drive, my wife is with me. She is like a walking DMV manual she's like, you know you're going five miles over the speed limit? I'm like, yep, I know that. You know you're still going five miles over the speed limit? Like, well, it's about to be seven. (laughs) Let's keep going with this conversation. That's what I feel like sometimes. But again, you're weak and you're flimsy. There's no power there. So where's the power? When you say, hey, I believe... And I stand for both grace and truth. Where does the power lie? The power lies in the tension of the two. This is where the power is. You see, it is not about balancing grace and truth. You can't balance grace and truth. You can't even balance your own life. What are you going to do balancing grace and truth? You exist in it and you live in the tension. And it's uncomfortable. You know the reason why people take sides between grace and truth? Because they don't want to be uncomfortable. That's why we call it tension. If it was comfortable, we would call it something else. It takes no effort on your part to go back to your muscle habit. It takes all the faith in the world to stretch over to the true side if you're all about the grace or to stretch over to the grace side if you're all about the truth. And by the way, there's a name for this tension. You know what it is? It's love. Love is the tension that we feel between grace and truth. Love is the tension of grace and truth. And you feel this tension. You're like, Jesus says this but I'm struggling with this, and Paul says this, but my family member has made this decision, you know, and, and Peter and, and, and John both say this over here, but my friend is going to do this over here, and you feel this tension, and you can't run away from it because when you run away from and when you take sides with the tension of grace and truth, you are running away from love. You're being unloving. And by the way, I tell people all the time if you don't like tension, better find another religion. You will not like Christianity. Like you don't believe me? Here, let's do the rubber band test. Ready? We believe in one God but the Trinity. Hello. (laughs) You ever hear people try to describe the Trinity? That's amusing. We believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. We believe the Bible was inspired by God but written by sinful people. We believe that God is sovereign but allows us to make our own decisions. We believe that death and evil were defeated at the cross and the resurrection, not yet destroyed. What about this? Here's a Christmas one. We believe in the virgin birth. <laughs> How many of you like the book of Revelation? How many of you? Okay, probably more than, I don't know why you're embarrassed to raise your hand. It's my favorite book, but that's fine. If you don't want to raise your hand, I know some of you are not participating. Maybe you're an introvert. Who knows? Um, <laughs> here's one from Revelation. Revelation. The wrath of the lamb. When was the last time you saw a wrathful lamb? <laughs> that would probably be terrifying, actually, wouldn't it? If you saw a wrathful lamb, right? So here, why is it that we have such a hard time with grace and truth, but not with, like, Jesus being fully God and fully human? Or God being sovereign and allowing us to have free will? Like, I'm willing to bet that you've stayed up all night, um, you've never stayed up all night worrying about Jesus being fully God and fully human. If you have, there are people you can talk to. Um, But the reason why we struggle with grace and truth is grace and truth always have to do with our relationships. And relationships have emotional attachment. That's why I'm willing to bet you have stayed up all night worrying about a friend or a loved one at some point in your past. But you've never stayed up all night worrying about Jesus being fully God and fully human. We run from pain naturally when we shouldn't run from pain. Pain is not the enemy. It's our unwillingness to face pain. That is the real enemy. And so, who is it in your life that you need to live in the tension of grace and truth with? Let me tell you about two of the people that I've had to live in grace and truth with. It's my mom and my dad. When I was Two years old, they were both professors at the University of Missouri-Columbia, and they got divorced, and both of them went into same-sex relationships. My mom was in a 22-year monogamous relationship with a psychologist named Vera, and my dad had several friends, but never a monogamous relationship. And my mom and Vera moved to Kansas City, Missouri, home of the greatest football team in the world. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye. Gonna leave it at that. But when I was that, they joined the local board of directors for GLAD. They took me with them as I was growing up to um, house parties and bars and clubs and pride parades and other things. And I remember this one pride parade we were marching in. And at the end of it, there were all these quote unquote Christians holding up signs saying "God hates you, no room for you." And when they would try to go talk to um, people from my mom's parade would go to try to dialogue with them they would douse them with water and urine saying this is what jesus thinks of you and i was in elementary school at that time i remember looking at my mom and i'm like why are they acting like this and she said well caleb they are christians and christians hate gay people if you're not like them they will not like you and i'm like man i don't want anything to do with that and i saw this proved time and time again I saw uh, Christian families ignoring their young sons, dying of AIDS in the 1980s uh, during the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Or if they were there, they didn't want to touch them. They didn't want to go near them. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. And I was amazed. Like, And I th- here's what I thought to myself. I never want to be a Christian because if Christians are this bad and Jesus is their leader, I can't imagine how awful he must be. Like, I really think we underestimate how much our attitudes, words, and actions will either encourage people to follow Jesus or discourage people to follow Jesus. And so by the time I got into high school, I was living it up, partying, sneaking out at nighttime. Um, Back then, my hair was down to here. And I, oh, that's funny. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Since then, the Lord has removed that and added elsewhere. um, That's, that's, he and I are still talking about that. But when I was 16, I got invited by a Christian in my high school. A, high school Christ, uh, person in my, a young guy who was in high school who was also a Christian invited me to his house. He was having a Bible study for other high schoolers there. It was not some random house I just showed up at. So um, I decided to go, and I was going to pretend to be a Christian so I could dismantle their faith. And obviously that worked out real well, as you can tell. I, I showed up at the age of 16. I had never stepped foot in a conservative Christian household before, much less a Catholic household. I'm going to describe their house, and hear me out here. If this description matches your house, I am not insulting your house. You do you. As long as you do not have pictures of the Raiders up in your household, you are fine. Okay? I'm just saying that as a 16-year-old who was an unbeliever, and as an unchurched person, I was not prepared for a house that looked like the occupants had raided a Bible bookstore. <laughs> like they had just picked it up and dropped it. Have you ever been in a Bible bookstore? Like I'm, I'm not talking about Westminster Seminary. I'm talking about a, an actual like strip mall Bible bookstore back in the day or whatever. Okay. I walked in there and it had the potpourri smell like a lot of them do. <laughs> then they had... Like, breath mints. Did you guys know that Christians have their own breath mints? Like, we do. Yeah, there are a couple, and, and, but this one, they were testaments. Don't ever try them. It's like peppermint and cyanide mixed together. Um, if that's your deal, give it a shot, but I just wouldn't. And then I was looking on the wall, and they had the Bible bookstore frame pictures. Like, I had never been in a house where somebody had a frame picture of a sheep or, like, a lion. Like, I had never been in a house where somebody framed a picture of an animal they didn't own and they threw it up on the wall with Bible verses and they had a picture of some sheep or lion with a kid playing with a cobra and I'm like, what is this? Are we going to sacrifice a chicken? Like, this is awkward. And then, like, my friend emerges from the basement and says, oh, we've all circled up. Won't you join us downstairs? And I'm like, well, this is the beginning of a horror movie. Like... (laughs) I mean, trust me, people, I've seen Unsolved Mysteries. You do not go down to basements. (laughs) Like, there's a tornado coming, and somebody says, come over to my basement. No, I'm going to let the tornado take me. (laughs) I will not go to your basement. But I went down there, and everybody was reading 1 Corinthians. And I couldn't find it, because I didn't know God put a table of contents in the Bible at that point. (laughs) And so, I read a verse from 1 Chronicles, thinking, who reads the Bible? They won't know. They get to me, I read a verse about some dude getting impaled. Um, (laughs) Not in 1 Corinthians, by the way, if you don't know that. And they're like, where are you? And I said, well, I'm in 1 Chronicles. They said, oh, you're in the Old Testament. I'm like, is there a new one? (laughs) Like, I didn't know we had updated 2.0. Like, I had no clue. Here's what I thought. I thought the Bible was a bunch of dusty old boring books written by a bunch of Middle Eastern people had been dead for like 2,000 years or more. That's what I thought about the Bible. But the more that I read it, the more that I realized that Jesus had very, very deep theological convictions, very real relationships with people, um, very real relationships with his disciples, and also he had expectations for how his followers would live their lives, pursue holiness, and treat others. But he also had relationships with people who are nothing like him. And I was like, man, I, I really like Jesus. I can get on board with him. And I started thinking about being a Christian, like I didn't want the sheep picture, but I still was thinking about being a Christian, and so I kept on studying, and I knew that I would have to come to terms with what the Bible had to say about sexuality, relationships, marriage, so on and so forth, and I came to two conclusions that I still hold today, and I want you to remember the tension of grace and truth here, okay? Here's the first conclusion that I still hold today, that I believe that God designed sexual intimacy and sexual affection to be expressed in a marriage between one man and one woman. I believe that. I believe that then. I believe that now. If there's anybody that has tried to disprove that, it is the guy with three gay parents. And I've tried time and time again. Here's what else I believe. That a theological conviction is never a catalyst to devalue another human being. That your biblical beliefs never give you permission to be unloving or to mistreat someone else. Did you know that you can have correct doctrine but be an absolute heretic in how you treat other people? And so then, um, like... I went to a Christian conference and felt like I wanted to be a pastor. And I woke up one morning, and I just felt like I was a Christian. I called my friend Greg. I'd been going to his dad's church, to the youth group there on Sunday nights, and called my friend Greg. And I said, Greg, I think I've turned Christian. (laughs) Like, what do I do now? He said, well, let's go eat Chinese food, and I'll baptize you. (laughs) All right. I guess that's in Acts 2.38, right? That's kind of the footnote version of that. So we did. And I was nervous to tell my parents. And some of you are like, why? Because I was a 16-year-old coming out to my three gay parents. I was a 16-year-old coming out as somebody who was a Christian who changed their view on sexuality and wanted to be a pastor. And you know what they did? They kicked me out. At the age of 16, I had to go stay with other friends because they said, now you are just like them. And this is interesting, I, I speak almost every summer to high school students, middle school students, and also to college age students um, in, in different conferences and, and camps and so on and so forth. And sometimes when I don't address this, I always have LGBTQ students will come and say, you do not know what it feels like to be rejected for who you think you are. I'm like, actually, I know exactly how that feels. And whatever pain and oppression you feel like others have given you, that never gives you the right to return that to other people or them. Because then in a sick and twisted way, you are imitating the very people that hurt you. And you're becoming more like them than Jesus. That's why we have to forgive. And so... I I would stay at my friends' houses. I would just read the Bible, like get home and read the Bible. I couldn't get enough of it. And then I I got home and like, I mean, good night. I just just read, 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 read. Eventually my parents let me back in. I went to um, Bible College in Southern Missouri. Anybody ever been to Southern Missouri? A couple of you? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend going if you haven't been or going back. Like um, neither is a good option. Um, I was in Bentonville, Arkansas last week. Um, You know how many places, like Escondido, family trees branch out. Well, there it's just a straight line (laughs) that goes up just like this. So I wouldn't recommend it. But I went there um, for four years. Uh, First church I ever preached at was um, like, I don't know, two weeks into being a freshman in Bible college. Preached at this church. Showed up. There were six people in the church. Um, the youngest one was 60. They wanted me to start a youth group, I think, for 40-year-olds or something. Um, the other church that I preached at, I ended up preaching at for 18 months. We were the largest church per capita, like statistically, in the world at that point. It was a town called Richards, Missouri. 50 people in the town. Half of them were in our church. We had half our town one for Christ. Who can say that, right? And um, after 18 months of preaching there, I was finally able to get my mom to come to church with me. And so she came. And like, it was an experience. Like, um, the worship here is great. We had bad worship. And some of you are like, Caleb, no worship is bad to God. Well, I would beg to differ. Um, (laughs) Let me explain. Like, we had this lady, God bless her heart, um, she had no clue how to play the piano. When I say she had no clue, I didn't mean that she could play and she was bad. I meant she had never taken a music lesson a day in her life. She could not read music. But somehow, everybody, except for me, thought it was a good idea for her to go up there during worship, and she would just bang on whatever keys that she felt like. Like, just whatever you're picturing in your head, multiply it by ten. And that was exactly what it was like. And that's why I say, like, I think God would have said, you know what? Why don't we try acapella? um, Just for this weekend. Like, that's honestly, it would have been great. But The next Sunday I showed up, my mom wasn't with me, but there were two elders waiting for me on the doorstep, and they said, we want to talk to you. And I said, yeah, what's up? And they said, if you want to keep preaching here, don't you ever bring somebody like your mother again. We don't like those people. And I said, excuse you? And they said, we don't like those people. And I said, I I don't like you now. Um, So I quit. I quit. Like right now, like I'm done, finished, finito, done. And I started to walk away. They're like, no, no, you need to preach today. And I said, oh, you don't want that. (laughs) Out of all things, you do not want me to preach today. No, we need you to preach. I said, you don't want me to. We need a sermon. Oh, you're going to get one. (laughs) So I, you know, took my sermon I had written. It was on fasting. Who cares about that? Ripped it up, you know. (laughs) There's a song in the 90s by Bon Jovi called Blaze of Glory that if you're gonna go out, you're gonna go out in a blaze of glory. People are gonna remember. And so I got up there and I just preached like the only charismatic sermon I've ever preached. I'm like, Holy Spirit's gonna lead me. I just got up there. And I preached on grace and truth and mercy and principle and compassion and conviction. I walked out of there and I said, God, if you ever allow me to be on staff at a church, I want to be in a church that is filled with messy, broken People With people that are questioning their sexuality, people who are in different relationships, people who are homeless, people who think they have it all together but they're really Pharisees, people who have mental health issues, people who have health, physical health issues. I want people that are bankrupt, people that have all the money in the world, people who have some money. I want people that have broken relationships with their parents and parents who have broken relationships with their families and so on and so forth because that's what the church is. The church is a messy, beautiful mosaic that God unites together to glorify himself. That is what the church is. I do not believe for one second that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for a place masquerading as a church when it is really a Pharisee factory of people who look like each other saying, you have to agree with us to be with us. That is unbiblical. Don't believe me? Go read 1 Corinthians 14 and get back to me. Paul said, when the church gathers together and unbelievers are in your midst, if you speak in tongues, will they not think that you are out of your minds? We focus so much on tongues that we forget the hypothetical scenario that Paul sets up there. When unbelievers are in your worship gatherings, be intentional about what you do and what you don't do so when I graduated I, from Bible college I moved out to California in 1999 when it was still cool to move to California um, <laughs> just saying too soon not all of us have been able to escape yet but I moved out here got married to my wife Went on staff at the church I'm on staff with now, Shepherd Church, Shepherd of the Hills Church, in Los Angeles area. <clears throat> Excuse me. Los Angeles area, northwest corner of the San Fernando Valley. Was on staff there for 11 years. Joined staff there again in July. Um, but then first time I left to go uh, preach in Dallas, Texas. Um, and I preached there for like, I don't know, something like I don't know, three and a half years. Um, it was a hostile environment. I mean... Uh, you have Jerry Jones and Mark Cuban. Um, it's very flat. You have the humidity. Um, and they had Nickelback concerts there. It was very awkward. Um, but my mom and dad moved there separately of one another. My mom's partner had died from cancer. And uh, in 2011, they moved there to be close to our family. And then they said, do you want to come to my church? Or do you, can we come to your church? And I'm like, you want to come to my church? You know what I believe about... They're like, yeah, and I said, come on, and the church treated them well, as opposed to the church in the middle of Richards, right, the little, the little upside-down lampstand there. This church treated them well, like so well, that the summer of 2013, two weeks before we le- uh, left to move back to Southern California, at the ages of 69, 70, my mom and dad gave their lives to Jesus Christ. And a lot of people are like, how is, that, how is that possible? And I asked my parents, what did it? So I was expecting a philosophical or a theological or apologetic argument. Maybe that did it. Here's what they said in so many words. People treated us like people, not like projects. You see, this is why I say you've got to learn to live in the tension of both grace and truth. Because love is the tension of grace and truth. I think we have some questions.
0: Wow. What a uh, what a great illustration. I think we need to carry a, uh, a rubber band with us everywhere we go
1: and live in that tension.
0: Well, uh, okay, so now is the time. Do you, you want to do
1: you wanna trade places so you can put your little... You know, there? yeah. Yeah, there we oh,
0: go. Maybe, maybe I'll, that's a good idea. Thanks. So
1: uh, we've got some good
0: We've got some good questions coming in. And if you want to uh, take a look and upvote questions, it'll help me a little bit. And so, uh, but the first question um, has to do with same-sex attraction, okay? The question is just this. Um, is same-sex attraction a sin? No.
1: Same-sex attraction is no more sin than opposite sex attraction. Same-sex attraction is no more sin than being hungry for a hamburger um, Are you going to steal somebody else's hamburger? Like, I don't know. Probably depends, right? Depends on the person and how hungry you are. But usually you shouldn't steal a hamburger. Same-sex attraction, opposite-sex attraction, that is not a sin. Okay? If they were sin, if if being same-sex attracted was a sin, then that would mean temptation is a sin. If temptation is a sin, that means Jesus was guilty of sin when he was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And I don't believe Jesus sinned. Um, So... No, I don't believe it is. I believe that the sin comes in to what starts playing out in your head and what you do with your actions. I think that is definitely the sin.
0: There you go. I like it. All right. So um, I'm just, now this is just the next question, um, you know, because I, I mentioned the things you do like, but, but do you like the office? I had to ask it. It was the next question. On Do I right like there. the office? Yeah. Oh, of course. Okay, of course. Come on, people check that question. Okay, good. No, no, all right. There's some fun ones on here. Um, but this one, this one I'm going to, so there's, there's someone who asked, uh, they've got a 17 year old grandson who is, uh, who's identifying as transgender. Um, and you know, I guess we could, we could broaden this to whatever they're identifying as, uh, you know, they may identify as gay, as lesbian. Um, what do you what do you say, as a as a grandfather, as a family member, to someone
1: like that? I would say that uh, during that it is it is. I would say a couple of things. Number one, it is important for you to be consistent in their lives. Students, um, young people need consistency. Uh, one of the number one reasons why. Um, relationships break down and why a lot of um, young people who are growing up do not know how to have good relationships is because they haven't had consistent ones. Um, This is why I think it's important for families to partner with churches when it comes to um, raising their kids and and teaching their kids and their students Christ-centered values. Um, and, And you need to have consistent family members as much as possible. And I understand that some of you don't And I understand that some of you have been through awful things, and and, and that means that you can be the consistent one in your kid's life. Or that when you're around them, you can be consistent. I think consistency is huge, number one. Number two is this. I would say you need to learn that there is a difference between acceptance and agreement. Okay? Um, Our society sees no difference between acceptance and agreement. That if you don't agree with me, then we're done talking. If you don't agree with me, then you are toxic, you're venomous, you need to get away. Um, As I was talking earlier with my friend Jonathan, that is nothing but a false dichotomy. And so you see, acceptance is loving somebody where they're at in the moment for who they are as a person, that you love them because they are still someone, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like, no matter what team they root for, everyone is somebody that God created and Jesus died for. Despite humanity's sin, all of us still bear God's uh, likeness and image, and all of us are either the recipients or potential recipients of Christ's blood. That's why we love people, no matter what, especially when they're our own family. But accepting someone is not the same as agreeing with their decisions, affirming their opinions, or approving of their relationships, There's a big difference between acceptance and agreement. And sometimes Christians can't see the difference. And that's why Christians um, unneedingly get rid of relationships and end up um, ruining influence that they could have used and leveraged to point people to Christ. Wow. I hope that's helpful for
0: whoever's out there. Um, I know there's a number of people who, who have family members, loved ones, um, that, uh, that are right there. And let's be people who, who enter into continue those relationships. That's a really, really good word. Now we hear words like, uh, uh, people, people say things that um, sound strange to some, but we're like a, like gay Christian. Okay. Um,
1: is that a, is that an oxymoron? Um, I don't like any adjective with Christian, mm. let me just say that first and foremost. I don't think there should be an adjective there. Um, I don't like gay Christian, I don't like Republican Christian, I don't like Democrat Christian, I don't like Southern Christian, I don't like any of that. I just like Christian, mm. okay, you're a Christian who happens to be conservative, you're a Christian who happens to be liberal, you're a Christian who happens to be same-sex attracted. I think we need to get away from this whole, like there are people who say, well, I'm a reformed Christian." Well, what does that mean? <laughs> I kind of know what that means, but come on, people. Like, have you, have you even, even like so many people have used the word evangelical Christian, which I guess I would be one as well. Well, I'm not guess, I know. But at the same time, that word evangelical has been, like, run through the mud. Why can't we just say we're Christian? Hmm. Well, we have to say what kind we are? No, no, you don't. Let your actions and how you treat people show people what kind of Christian you are. So I don't, I don't like it, but I don't like any modifier with the word Christian. I think maybe we should get rid of it. That's my personal opinion. But I mean, nobody, nobody listens to me, um, <laughs> especially in my family. But everything will be different when I run all three branches of the government. You, okay, good, good, good. Good. I'll, I'll, Those vote, are, I'll vote Caleb. The, I'll vote Caleb. No, there's no voting. <laughs> oh, okay, okay what's this voting? I'm German. There's no voting. Okay. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So what about,
0: um, would you allow a gay couple to, uh, to come to church?
1: Yeah. Join a church. Yeah. Uh, to come to church. Why not? Um, joining a church. I think church membership is in for a rude awakening in America. And we already kind of talked about that in one of our earliest sessions. And I think Christians, r- churches really need to think, rethink the way that they do membership, especially in light of the Equality Act, um, which I wrote a 106-page document on that um, because, obviously, I had nothing else to do. Um, <laughs> you are but the research pastor. I am. So that I mean, that is my go. title. Uh, yeah. and, and that's hardly anything that I do there. I don't even know what that means, research <laughs> pastor. I don't they could have said, this is the water pastor. Yeah. <laughs> what does that mean? I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I, I think that um, we need to be less worried about membership, more worried about engagement. Mm. Um, because worrying about membership has actually caused us to miss the ideologies that have swept into our culture right now. And we have so many people who are saying, oh, society, everything's changing so quickly. No, it isn't. It's been changing this way for 150 years. We've been acting like we have home field advantage. We've been focusing on things like membership instead of focusing on discipleship. And we need to stop. And I'm telling you, the membership is going to be a legal problem one day. There are pastors who say, well, one day I'll, I'll get you know, sued for not, you know, refusing to marry a gay couple. No, they don't want you to marry them. No, that's not going to happen. That, that's not tied to the government. You know what is tied to the government? 501c3. You know what 501c3 says you have to have as a nonprofit? Boards and membership. You know what is low-hanging fruit? Membership. That is tied to a financial advantage that you get from the government. I'm telling you, membership is going to be an issue, and it needs to be rethought. But we can talk about that another time. Ah, interesting, interesting. interesting.
0: Okay, so uh, we got invited to a, a same-sex marriage, um, a wedding, excuse me, a wedding ceremony. Um, do, we, do we go? Do our kids go?
1: You know, I, I think it depends. Um, I think there are good reasons to go and good reasons not to go.
0: Sounds like a rubber band answer.
1: Yeah, it is. And I'm not throwing everything under the bus of the rubber band. No, I will say this. I will never officiate a same-sex wedding because of my theological convictions. I just won't. Um, But truth be told, I don't like officiating straight weddings. They're annoying. All weddings are annoying. (laughs) Like... I just don't. They eat up the whole day and... I was telling the staff, there was this couple that asked me, like, a few weeks ago, hey, Pastor Caleb, would you do our wedding? We're getting married, da-da-da. And I'm like, you know what? I can't. I'm busy that weekend. They're like, we didn't even tell you the date. (laughs) And I'm like, well, there you go. You you don't want me. There are literally 25 other pastors on this staff. Go get one of them. (laughs) Like, trust me. I will mess it up, and you will hate me by the end. Um, Anyway. So, I think... That it depends. There, I, I know people that have gone and people have not gone. I have attended gay weddings, and I have chosen not to attend others. Um, and I think that it's kind of like a Romans 14 issue. Whatever it is that you don't do by faith, um, you're sinning. And so I think that if you don't go, I think that's fine. I think that if it causes friction in the relationship, you better be ready for that. I think that if you do go, you don't have to say congratulations. You can say other things like, thank you for inviting me. Um, I love you. Um, I'm so glad, you know, that you're in my life. I mean, there are different things you can say. Um, And this really hits home when you have a family member. And so, usually, when people are really conflicted on and they don't know, I'll ask them two questions. Okay? Two or three. Depends. Or maybe more. I don't know. We'll see. You tell me how many. Um, Number one, I'll say, if you didn't go to the wedding, would it hurt the relationship? If they say yes, here's the next question I ask. What would you be willing to do to keep and maintain, to keep and build influence in the life of your child, your grandchild, your niece, your nephew, your sibling? How far would you be willing to go to earn the right to be one of the first people that they called or texted when life hit the bottom of the barrel? Let me tell you something. My kids, and I kid you not, not even joking, I will charge the gates of hell with this work on if it's my children, short of sinning, short of denying what I believe, short of denying my character, compromising it, short of um, denying Jesus, I will do whatever I can to keep and build influence with them so that they feel like they can call or text me because life will happen. Um... And that's really what it comes down to, I think. That like, do you have influence? Because when you have influence with somebody, your words carry weight. And when your words carry weight, people listen to you. And I will be willing to do whatever I can. And you know what? That means I will be judged, even by some of you. Ask me if I care. I don't. It's another perk of having ADHD. We don't care. <laughs> I really don't. So, for me, I know he knows my heart. That's good enough for me. I have an audience of one. Mm. Now, someone did ask
0: uh, about a, a, a son or daughter, child, um, who, as they say, is in the LGBT community. Um, and it sounds like they want they want that influence that you're talking about, um, because they're saying, you know, do you support or not support? Um, what does that look like? How do I show love? Uh, you know, but. But, but not support, is that, you know, how do
1: you go about maintaining Well, here's the it? thing. Yeah, here's the thing. If your kid relates or identifies as LGBTQ, which usually in a question like this, it means that they are looking for a relationship probably or they're in one. Here's what I can say. I'm willing to bet that if they are your child, they already know what you believe. I'm just willing to bet that. And I'm willing to bet that they probably know that you're not going to change your mind. Because, I don't know, some of you know this. The older you get, the more you think you're right, and the more you realize you're right. Okay? <laughs> the, the, I'll just leave it at that. So, I, I find that a lot of, family, of young family members especially... They don't, some want you to change your mind, but many know that you're not going to. But that's not what they want. You know what they want? They want to know, will you still be in my life? Hmm. Are you still going to be fully present? And the answer should be, absolutely. I'm there. Because that should change nothing about how I love a person. Does that make sense? Hmm. There we go.
0: All right. So, what about as uh, as friends? Okay. Um, you know, uh, let's just say a guy friend, a guy, and their guy friend. Guy a guy comes out. who's a guy friend. A guy friend. Yeah. So, a guy I just comes want to make out. sure. They're... Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. A, uh, just to be clear, what's what's jerk. happening here? friend. How do you continue to be good friends with someone who is uh, who is, comes out as same sex attraction?
1: What, what do you mean? How do you continue to mean?
0: I'm just asking the question. Man. Okay, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't,
1: I'm, I'm not being rude when I say, what do no. you mean? Um, I, I would say this, um, be their friend. Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't change anything. And, but here's what some guys do, okay? And if you're one of my fellow dudes, I'm probably getting ready to insult you. And again, I'm sorry, I'm, but I'm insulting myself, okay? A lot of guys have more of an issue with their guy friends being gay than women have with their women friends being bisexual or lesbian, okay? And part of the issue is, is that there are a lot of guys out there, they find out that one of their friends is gay, they're like, what, what if he's attracted to me? And I'm like, there's not much danger. Um, <laughs> it's like, look, if you're not attractive to the opposite sex, what makes you think all of a sudden <laughs> That transfers, okay? It, it's, you're in safe territory, okay? Not going to happen. So that's one thing that a lot of guys, for whatever reason, they automatically, what if I, you know, it's like, dude, chill. Like, you don't have to worry about that. You just need to be their friend. Like, not, and, and, that's, and I, that's why I said I wasn't being rude when I honestly said, what do you mean? Because for me, that, that shouldn't change anything. I mean... I mean, it's not like you have to change your diet because your friend is gay. You don't have to eat a bunch of couscous from now on or, you know, you don't have to, I don't know. You don't, whatever. You don't have to do that. You just be their friend, you know? That's what I would say. Mm -hmm. I love it. Mm.
0: Okay, here's what I want to do. I'm going to ask one more question that's going to be for us. I'm going to ask Pastor Ryan to come up and, and close our time. But if you're willing to, um, I know because some, some people have to go get their kids from the program and things. But if you're willing to take a few more yeah. questions up here, yeah. um, I'd love to continue that after this. And so, but here's the last question because I think this one is a, is a great one. And uh, a, a church like ours, a lot of people are here today um, not just because they want to learn but because they do want to reach out to this community. Um, we want to be a church that can reach out. So what, what does a church like ours do to
1: reach out to this community I think that one of the best things that you can do like I don't think you should form a group to reach out to the people who are LGBTQ because then that will be weird Um, I don't think you should do that I think one of the best things that you can do um, is to understand that thinking deeper about people does not mean you are thinking differently about theology. That when you think deeper about an individual, that does not mean that you are shifting in your doctrine. Here's what I mean by that. Everybody you meet is very deep. There's not one person you've met who is shallow. They may act that way at times, but they're not. That's a big wall for their insecurities. All of us are an amalgam or a conglomeration of our experiences, our hurts, our pains, our joys, our upbringing, our religious beliefs, our accomplishments, our failures, and and so on and so forth. There's not one person who is shallow. And so we need to start thinking deeper about people. We need to make less assumptions. as I really, really believe that assumptions to some degree, are the result of fear. And as I was, I was talking with my friend, uh, Jonathan, earlier tonight, that um, one of my favorite um, authors, she's a mystery writer who's obviously passed away, Agatha Christie, she has one of the best definitions in one of her books, I can't remember which one, I'll, I'll try, I need to figure that out, uh, because I remember reading it, it was so good. She has one of the best definitions of fear that I've ever read. She says that fear, Is a lack of knowledge. Let that sink in for a second. Fear is a lack of knowledge. Like, I don't care what leadership or business gurus say, like, you know, fear is the enemy. Those people are morons. Fear is not the enemy. God gave you fear for a reason. If you're hiking, which you can tell I don't. (laughs) But if you're hiking and you see a rattlesnake, you should be afraid. Right? You shouldn't pick it up and pet it and say its name is going to be Betsy. <laughs> no. Okay? If you're hiking with a friend and you see a mountain lion, you should be afraid. You should start backing away as you push your friend forward. <laughs> right? You see, we naturally fear whatever it is that we don't understand or what makes us feel out of control or what threatens us. That's what we naturally fear. And we go into fight or flight mode or we become indifferent when the answer is actually to be empathetic and to lean into what we don't know. And we do that by our faith in God, in he who has all the power in the world and knows everything. And God doesn't only know everything. God knows everything that could have been if this or this would have happened And you see, that's how a relationship with God helps you to overcome toxic fear because fear becomes toxic when it starts determining your relationships or the direction of your life. Um, And that's what I would say. You need to learn to think deeper about people and thinking deeper about people does not mean you are thinking differently about your theology.
0: There you go. Caleb, thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Uh, Caleb, thank you so much Really appreciate you being with us tonight Uh, Josh, you said he's going to stick around and answer some more questions All right, let me pray for us And then um, I'll release you Especially if you're a parent with a a child Who's in our Wednesday night programming Lord, thanks so much for this evening God, thank you for the invitation that you've given us To live in the tension of grace and truth That place of love and Lord, um, for the encouragement and for just the way you've worked through Caleb's life and through his story, we're so grateful. We lift him up to you. Would you continue to give him favor and, Lord, put people in his path like us uh, who need to hear the message you've given him. Lord, we're grateful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Amen. Thank you so much. Let's... Caleb, thank you. What's that? Let's... If we can, we're going to stick around. So if you need to, if you need to run, you can. Um, By the way, let me just say thank you to all the online people joining us. A number of people are are watching online or or joining us later. Um, And so, if you can stick around, um, I, I know there's a few more, quite a few more questions. I'm just going to say, don't give me any more questions, okay? I've got enough. Um, I would love you to upvote. You can still upvote, but just don't add anymore. Okay, we're not going to get to all of these as it is. Um, but uh, all right. So um, here's
1: uh, there's a whole area of questions here about um, uh, what does it mean? What does it mean to be gay affirming? That means when you support same-sex relationships and um, same-sex marriages, and you, for many people, that means that they believe that the Bible affirmed same-sex marriages or same-sex relationships.
0: Okay. Will you explain, there's also lingo in the Christian world about side A and
1: side B. I always get confused on that one. So (laughs) um, side A, if I'm remembering correctly, are people who are are, are, um, LGBTQ individuals who are affirming of um, same-sex relationships and side B are LGBTQ people who believe that uh, sex and marriage is between one man and one woman.
0: Okay, okay. So um, this is a question specifically for somebody who is, as they say, a side B Christian. So somebody who is, uh, believes that, that marriage is between a, a man and a woman, um, and yet that's a per- this is a person that struggles with same-sex attraction. Should they be open with their church and community about that struggle?
1: Not necessarily. Not everybody deserves to hear your story. Hmm. Like there, there are a great number of people that will not understand what you've been through. And I'm not telling you to not be authentic. I'm telling you to be very intentional about who you tell and don't tell. Um, and you're not sinning if you don't tell your church. Why would you be sinning? You're not. You know how many things I haven't told my church <laughs> you, you're not. You're not sinning. Like I, I would not share that unless it's something you feel like God wants you to do. Now, you will meet some church staff you can share that with, and you trust them. Um, but not everybody deserves to hear your story. It's not a sin not to share your story. Um, you need to be very, very intentional. Or hear me out on this. Anytime you put your neck out on the line, somebody will gladly try to chop it off. Mm. Like, you know, even with what I do, and I kid you not, I receive about four death threats a year. Like, literally. One was mailed to the church that, you know, I used to preach at Discovery last year or two years ago. They said they're gonna come and kill me huh. and so I let the pastor know who's there now. I said, "Well, hey, they're gonna think you're me, so thank you in advance." But um, <laughs> taking one for the team. But so you're so people are always and, and believe me, the, the the comments I get from people saying you're too conservative, or you're too liberal, or blah blah blah. Um, you just I know this sounds weird. When you do get criticism, you just got to learn to not care. Um, you got to have thick skin like a rhino and a big heart, you know. And um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't tell a whole bunch of people unless you really feel like God wants you to. And, I'm not, and that sounds like I'm shaming you or saying you should hide. No, I'm saying you should be intentional. Not everybody will understand. And you will not have the platform to tell everybody in the way that you want to. There you go. Go okay now, for the same person
0: who's holds on to what you're saying about the truth of of uh, of of what the scriptures say, um, is the only option, celibacy.
1: I mean that's a that's a big option. I mean you have options. It's just which one is the right option. So here's one option. One option is you can be in a same-sex relationship. But I think. The Word of God consistently throughout the Old and New Testament says that sex and marriage are between a man and a woman. And by the way, I, to prove my point, I don't go to Romans 1. I don't go to 1 Corinthians 6. I don't go to 1 Timothy 1. I don't go to Leviticus because then you've got to deal with shrimp, and I don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't go to any of those. Now, I, do I believe those are the Word of God? Absolutely, I believe they're true. I don't go to any of those. You know where I go? Um... Like N.T. Wright, when he makes this argument, he goes to Genesis 2, 24. But I don't start there. I start with either Matthew 19 or Mark 10 because I think we got to start with the words of Jesus. I've met plenty of people that don't like the Bible, that don't like Paul, they don't like the church. I've never met one person that doesn't like Jesus. And so I start with what Jesus had to say about marriage when he was asked about divorce. And he quotes Genesis 126 or 127 and Genesis 224, and I use that as a springboard. And so, I mean, that's where I go. Um, And so Jesus had a very, very strong sexual ethic and very much believed that marriage is between a man and a woman. Um, So I don't think you want that option. Another option is you can, if you're same-sex attracted, you can marry somebody of the opposite sex. I do not recommend that usually, I just don't. Those relationships explode. Now there are some um, couples I know that are in what we call mixed orientation marriages where somebody who is same-sex attracted will develop, you know, has a deep emotional bond with somebody um, of the opposite sex and that turns into um, uh, attractional feelings. Um, There's, I think her name is Lori Krieg, Um, she's an author, and she writes about being in a mixed orientation marriage, a Christian author, and it's it's a fantastic book. Um, But I don't recommend that unless that really happens, because some people just do that, and they don't realize how it's going to hurt them and others. Um, Then the third option, really, there are just three options, is to be uh, celibate. And I have a real big problem with how the church handles celibacy. Like, I really do. Um, There are a lot of people who think that celibacy is the same thing as heterosexual singleness, and it's not. Those are two different concepts. Um, When you're heterosexual and single, there's always a chance you might find somebody. When you're same-sex attracted and celibate, you're not, probably. And so, you have churches that recommend celibacy like it's Advil. I'm struggling with this. Celibacy. I'm struggling with this. Celibacy. Like, do you know how that sounds? Here's why a lot of people think that celibacy is so hard. Because you don't get to have sex. Like, I get it. That's hard. I get it. But celibacy, like, the reason why a lot of people I know who fear celibacy, is not because of sex. Like, I've tried to explain this to my 14-year-old son. Nobody has ever died from a lack of sex, There's not been one documented case. How'd you lose him? He didn't have sex. There's not been one documented case of that happening. There have been plenty of people who have died because of sex. There's not been one documented case of somebody dying because they didn't. But the biggest reason why people fear celibacy, from what I heard, is because they fear loneliness. Loneliness. And so I have a, uh, and so here are two things on that. Number one, the church needs to become family for that person, specific leaders in the church, and I mean inviting them on family trips and vacations and holidays. I don't think any church leader should ever, ever recommend celibacy if they're not willing to step in that person's life, never ask somebody to carry a burden, you're not willing to help them lift. Because that is rough. Here's the other thing I'd say. Part of the reason why we're in this mess is because society just idolizes sex. And to a certain degree, there have been some Christians that have reacted by idolizing marriage. And they have turned marriage into this huge idol. And they they act like it is the highest form of intimacy that you could ever have. And that is a... Oh, I thought God was calling there for a second. <laughs> it's like, did I say something wrong? It's like the cross is making noises. <laughs> and marriage is not the highest form of intimacy you can have. Do you know what the highest form of intimacy is? Agape love. You know that, there are, that you can have deep intimacy with friends as well. That's appropriate, but is deep. Like, marriage is not the highest form of intimacy. By the way, do you know marriage and sex, bad news, people, not gonna be in heaven. Do you know why? There's not any need. Who needs it? How can you say that? Very easily I can say that. Remember how God required, like, their, like animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Everybody remember that? And there are some of you you could not be Jewish in the Old Testament because you would have to kill little Lammy. Like seriously, there are some of you, you wouldn't be able to go to the temple every year, could you? No. I had a buddy who got fired from a church and he should have gotten fired. It was a good thing. Um, He was at a church camp all week and he needed to teach the kids about atonement so he brought a lamb with him. Oh yeah, you see where this is going. Everybody fell in love with that lamb. And on the very last night... That lamb died a gruesome death because it was obvious that he had never slit a throat before. Now, I think that's a good thing that he's never slit a throat. I don't know how to. That's not a tool that I want in my toolbox. No pun intended. They, people, the kids were scarred. That thing screamed. They like... It was awful. Okay. There are some of you, and if you lived in the Old Testament times, you would be an atheist. You would be like, no. You would rescue little Lammy and run off in the hills with him. He'd not taking him to the temple. But yet, God set up the sacrificial animal system. Yet he said in the Old Testament more than once: the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin. Why did he do that? To show. The higher form of sacrifice, substitutionary atonement, Jesus Christ, to set up our understanding of vicarious substitutionary atonement, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. What is the purpose of marriage? The purpose of marriage has many purposes. You know the ultimate purpose of marriage? The ultimate, yeah, to glorify God, bingo. But the ultimate purpose of marriage within that is to point to the greater marriage between Christ and the church between the bride and the bridegroom. And in the end of days, when Jesus marries his church, there will no longer be any need for marriage. Just like there is no need for animal sacrifices when the cross happened, there will no longer be need for any marriage when the marriage of the church and Jesus happens. And yet, what do we spend all of our time talking about? Marriage and sex, marriage and sex. they are not even going to be in heaven. Like, do you know how dangerous eros is when you separate it from the other Loves like strage, parental love, phileo, friendship love, and agape, godly love. It is so dangerous. So that's what I would say. I don't even remember what the question was. Uh, (laughs) All right. Well, you know, he just took. I told a Hannibal Lecter story about a lamb. Sorry about that in advance. He just went from
0: celibacy to the gospel right there. And so that's, I just got to end there. What a a great answer. And what a great, uh, uh, what great passion. Um, So you guys, let's give it up one more time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So now let's, we've, uh, hopefully, we've lost some of the fear because we've lost some of that, uh, you know, uh, we've gained some of the knowledge, right? So, um, and so now let's go use it and let's, let's love better. All right. God bless everybody. We'll see you next time.